Welcome back, everyone, to Wells Preachers Podcast. We are at the fourth Sunday in Lent for year C. Our series theme continues to be crushed, looking at how Jesus crushes all the things that can crush us. Our theme for this particular day, our condemnation is crushed by God's grace. All three lessons talk about grace, but in very different ways. There's the precise prose of Romans 8, the poetry of Isaiah chapter 12, and then the compelling narrative in the parable of Luke 15. Our participants today are Pastor Jonathan Bauer of Good News Lutheran in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, Pastor Joel Rousseau of Faith Lutheran in Tallahassee, Florida, and Professor Alan Sorum of Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary. I'm John Hine, coordinator of Wells Congregational Services. John Bauer, I want to begin with you. I, I begin the podcast with this question every time, and maybe it's silly this week, given how straightforward and simple the weekly theme is, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What would you say is the main thing, the main truth you hope your people take home after church this weekend? Yeah, it, it, it's still, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, a good question and a, a good uh, place to start, you know, each and every week. What, how does this all tie together? And I think you um, touched on it well, that as I, as I look at these three lessons, it's interesting that there's obviously a very common thread that ties through all three of them, but the being God's grace, but the, the way in which that is presented is different in each one. So you've got a very precise, uh, almost uh, dissective analysis of grace in Romans 8. Uh, Isaiah 12 has the poetry, but then uh, probably Jesus' most famous parable in the gospel that talks about, uh, that, that gives us a picture of what grace looks like. And I, I think as you think about the, the theme for the Sunday, as it's, as it's been articulated, um, there's, there's maybe room there for a little bit of double meaning in the sense that it's, it's first of all, you know, if we were to kind of look at both sides of a, of a, a genitive, if we were imagining it in Greek, um, condemnation of us. So it, on the one hand, it could be an objective genitive, and that's maybe first and foremost how we think of it. The condemnation that we deserve, the condemnation that should fall on us is, is crushed by God's grace. But also um, looking at it in more of a subjective sense, the condemnation that we are quick to give and, and put on and hold over others. And as we talk about the gospel, that, of course, is the, the context um, of the, the parable that Jesus tells here. And so it's, you know, it's God's grace, but God's grace as the antidote both to the, the, the sense of condemnation that we rightfully feel and the notions of condemnation that we are quick to uh, project onto others. That's fantastic. I haven't even, I haven't even thought about that dual meaning, but that's that's really helpful. Uh, Joel, let me pivot to you then. Um, you know, John kind of set it up talking about the lessons. How do you think the the parable of the lost son will serve to drive home that theme of the day? I've been, uh, you know, I just think of Luke fifteen as the lost chapter, and if you kind of walk through the the parables, there's a pattern that kind of picks up with the first two where Jesus talks about the, you know, doesn't the shepherd go after the one lost one? Doesn't the the woman look for that one lost coin? And he's asking in a question manner, and then he just breaks the pattern when he gets to the last one, because this is something that's just so extraordinary. And I don't know if I just missed it before, but the word that just kept popping out in the Greek, because it's repeated, I think, 12 times, is father, 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 as if to 
is if to highlight who who's the one that's so extraordinary and who's the truly the one prodigal um, in terms of extravagant in his love is the father. And so I think we can relate to the, you know, the younger son and we can relate to the older son, but it's the father that whose grace is so just extraordinary. And uh, there's a lot that you can dig into and dive into just even with his love and how he shows his love. Yeah, those are great thoughts. Uh, Professor Sorum, great to have you joining us again. Uh, so guys have done their text study. Do you have any initial thoughts, either about the Greek text or just about what you see as the main message? I have to be careful because uh, yesterday I finished for about the tenth time in my career writing a sermon on this text, so um, I'll, I'll be biting my tongue. <laughs> I, I really appreciated the comments from my two younger brothers already. We we love this parable so much. Um, but we tend to think of it as the, the parable of the prodigal son. But, but both of you have said so well that there's two sons here, and the real focus is on the father. And, and uh, I love how John set this up. The, the context is critically important. The first two verses show us uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law just offended at Jesus and offended at these sinners and and their heart is like like uh, burnt toast and to juxtapose uh, the father's heart or as Joel said the father 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 father's heart to this burnt toast pharisaical heart of judgment he tells, he tells what is truly Jesus most, certainly in the inner city. I mean, I, I got to tell you that that this was a this was a a text very close to me, very close to the people I was blessed to serve for over two decades. This story communicates grace like absolutely well. That's kind of a subjective statement, but in. But in my experience, nothing conveys grace quite, quite like this as uh, the father that's waiting for all of his children to come home. Uh, I think there's some really juicy tidbits, even in this narrative. There's some really juice, juicy tidbits in, in the Greek. My favorite one is, uh, it sounds so contemporary, but but... Uh, what, what I say in my sermon, there's something very special about pig muck. Because this young man standing in pig muck, in Jesus' own phraseology, was he came to himself. It, doesn't that sound contemporary? Uh, before that, he was whiny. He said to his father, uh, treat me like a man, you know, give me my share of the inheritance, treat me like a man. And the first thing he did is depart to a foreign country where he could be totally anonymous and have fun. Fun resulted in his slavery to pigs, which if you're a Jewish young man, what could be more degrading than that? But in the pig muck, he came to himself. I, that That's a real interesting thing for a preacher to uh, play around with. A couple other things I really liked in the in the Greek is there's some really important Im, imperfects. Um, you know, the, the Greek tense doesn't default to the imperfect. And when you see an imperfect, you, you want to think a minute 
what it's doing there. But he's standing there in the pig muck and he kept on longing for the carob pods. I mean, that's that that that'll break your heart. I mean, if you think about it, he's longing to eat what the pigs are eating. And then the next the, the next imperfect right after that. And there just wasn't anyone ever around to ever give him any any help at all. Uh, I, I think Jesus' use of uh, imperfects really convey the the heart of this story, and it was this this deep, ongoing longing for some human comfort, and no humans were there. After he spent all his money on these on these humans, uh, until he ran out of money, that then there was just no human contact. And it's in this he comes to himself and he says. Uh, I, I gotta go. I gotta go back to my father. I, I don't. I'm not worthy to be his son, but he'll hire me and take care of me the way he takes care of his um, his hired workers. And then, what word does Jesus use to depict the father's reaction to his son returning? Um, I kind of like to act this part out. There's a little bit of African in me I just can't get rid of. I like to act this out in the sermon. I, I pretend like I'm looking down the road, like this father never gave up, right? He, every every time he walked by that long driveway up to the hacienda, he looked down the road, and, and, and there he finally saw his son coming home. What's the word that Jesus uses? To capture the emotional response of this father seeing his young son come. It's splunknizo. Now, you know, that's the word that the Gospels use to depict, like, for example, Jesus, he feels this deep emotional response to the, to the sheep, that, these huge crowds of people that are all torn up because they're sheep without a shepherd. So what does he feel in his heart? Or in his bowels, he feels splunknizo. I mean, this is a God verb. This is a God response that, that Jesus is attributing to the Father in this incredibly gorgeous parable. The Father saw his son. He felt compassion. Now, he could have felt, he could have felt, this is in the Greek too. I'm, I'm on track, John. I am definitely on track. You asked me a Greek question. So here comes the Greek. There's a lot of Greek in this parable. So there's a ton of Greek. There, there's just tons of Greek. So yeah. he feels his compassion instead of feeling, well, well, this naughty boy of mine, I'm going to, I'm going to slap this kid down. He doesn't do that. He runs out, running out the, the, the present participle running out. He falls on his neck and he kisses them. If you're not weeping, by now, as, as you're preaching this to your people, if, if the folks aren't weeping, uh, you know, just hang your head in shame. I mean, the, this story requires uh, incredible uh, uh, emotional response from us as we see the father giving up everything he deserves, giving up his right to be angry, giving up his right for justice. He gives that up and he just falls on his son with kisses and embraces and and all the gifts that only sons wear not the gifts that that slaves or work work hired workers wear but but sandals and rings and and robes that that only 
a son wears. Well, now he finds out that his older son, okay, pay attention, Pharisees, pay attention, dried out pieces of toast. The, the father hears that his older son isn't going to come to the party. What does he do? Does he get angry? Does he get fed up? Does he rebuke his older son? Does he distance himself from his older son? Does he, does he f- feel offense to the, the self-righteous, bitter attitude of the older son? Nope. He goes out to him. There the, the Greek word is literally going out to him. He then, and I, and, uh, uh, he, he, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's another imperfect where going out to him, he pleads. Yeah, it is an imperfect because the, the question is, do you translate the imperfect as he begins to beseech? Or I don't think so. I don't think it's the beginning to, I think it's he continues to beg and implore in an ongoing way. Come on, my older son. Everything I have is yours. It's all yours. Come on in and rejoice with me over the return of your son. Now, now we know the Pharisees and the scribes didn't have light, so they couldn't fully understand. But I I wonder if, if they were picking up on the fact that Jesus is talking to them. God's grace is so incredibly abundant that he wants every one of his lost sons and daughters in his home. He wants the prodigal ones who spent their life, wasted their life. He wants them in his house. And he wants those bitter, dried out pieces of judgmental, hypocritical toast in his house just as much. And, and I think the, the question that I want to ask as a preacher is something like this to my, to my congregation. Which son are you? And the fact is, we're, you know, we're both, aren't we? Like, like uh, John said in his opening, we're, we can be prodigal. You know, hey, this, this was written for me, this prodigal son parable that's like for me or I should speak for myself there or it's for me when I'm looking down my nose at everybody else and I'm just like superior and holier than thou that that that's not my father's heart that's not how he rolls he wants me to have his heart and the fact that he forgives me for my dried out French toast not French toast dried toast heart that, uh, that there's no story that can can convey God's grace in quite those terms and quite that emotional impact. Yeah, a French toast heart would be very sweet. Squishy. <laughs> that's that's those are excellent thoughts, Al. Thank you so much. Um, so, John Bauer, let me pivot back to you because guys are eager to start writing. So. Various points in the sermon. Yeah, any initial thoughts on what you're gonna, things you're gonna handle, how you're gonna handle the text? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, all terrific thoughts uh, there from Professor Sorum, and I think um, just to maybe build on a couple of them, especially as you think about what Jesus is trying to accomplish in the context and how how he's trying to accomplish it um, by the telling of this story. So, 
I mean, as you think about using this as an opportunity, first of all, to expose uh, a malady, um, there, there is the overarching malady, of course, uh, of the context um, that's abundantly clear. I think it is interesting, you know, you, you, obviously you, you talk a little bit about the first son. Um, I even wonder, and I've, I've done this when I've preached on this parable before, that yes, there's two sons, but there's almost three episodes to the story. Um, there's the first episode that we might call grace abused, um, where the son really comes with this um, impertinent request, but but the father shows grace in that first episode by, by saying yes. I mean, he, he gives him his share of the estate. He doesn't immediately write him out of the will, um, but it's, a, it's a, an example of grace abused. Then when the son comes to his senses, and I, I just, I really appreciate what Professor Sorum said about that, that he comes to himself, um, you know, we're conditioned to believe it's in, it's in the air that we breathe, that the way that we find our true selves is away from all restrictions, right? Well, that's exactly what this son was able to achieve. He got away from all the restrictions, but he realized that this is where I'm, I'm most lost out here when I'm away from my father. He comes to himself realizing that he needs to, needs to go back. Um, but then as he goes back, we, we maybe say this is grace um, underestimated, that he goes back with this plan uh, that he can maybe work his way back into his father's good favor and, and earn blessings back the way that a servant would. And then the third part, of course, being uh, maybe grace resented or grace despised as the older brother um, sees what has happened and, you know, expresses his, his frustration and, and being upset. And, you know, all three of those, as, as a professor said, a, a great opportunity to say to people, do you see yourself here in the story? And do you see yourself here in the story? And do you see yourself here in the story? And and probably like a lot of Jesus' parables, you know, you think of the parable of the sower and the seed. It's not which of these four am I, A, B, or C, or D, but at different points in my life, I'm A and B and C and D. So also here in, in different points of my life, I abuse grace, I underestimate grace, and I despise the grace that God shows to others. But kind of pausing at each of those moments to say, do, do you see yourself here at all? Um, can be a great way to uh, kind of expose and, and preach the law in the way that Jesus designed the parable to do. John, please please allow me a quick inject uh, inject a fourth vignette into the three grace vignettes. Uh, I, I love those thoughts, John. How about the fourth one being grace shared? Because you say to your congregation then, the Father is so glad to have you back. He's so glad to have you in his home. But he's only half as glad as he's going to be as when he gets his, the rest of his sons and daughters back in his home. Go, go invite them. Go invite them to come to the Father's home. Something like that. I, I like that. And I think it's uh, it's... I mean, I don't know what, what kind of analogy or phrase to use, but that's that's the umbrella that covers it all, right? That's that's what Jesus is accomplishing as he talks about these these three different episodes. Um, he's reaching out to these Pharisees and, and helping them see um, there's a whole lot of joy that you guys are missing out on out, outside here. Inside's where the party's to be found. 
that outline that you had, John, it, 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 um, I think it drives home to the similarity that you, the people note between the two sons and that they're, they don't want the father's grace or the relationship, like a good relationship with the father. They, they just want his stuff. So the first son just says, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be near you, dad. So just give me the stuff. The se- and, and the second son is upset in part because everything the father even says everything that's mine is yours, but I'm now going to give a whole bunch of it to the son who's come back. And so the, the I think the older brother is thinking about what he's, what he's going to lose out on. And I, that, I think that has to be a Tim Keller prodigal God point that, that uh, I'm pretty sure that's where I read that, that they, neither of them want the father's a relationship with the father. They want the father's blessings and they're just going about it different ways. One is saying, I'm blessed if I can be apart from you. The other is saying, I'm going to like slave for you. And, and then you have, then you, you owe me all this because I've been such a good son. Um, so they're really the exact, the, the, the religious person and the irreligious person who just want blessing are really kind of one and the same. Just one looks immoral and one looks moral. Joel, you, you got, looks like you got something to say. What, what are you thinking? So building on the, that fourth grace one that Professor Soren brought up of grace shared, um, I just thought it was interesting that as you so he kind of rehearses his speech, the younger son, and he comes home and he's getting ready to launch into his speech. And he, he does finally give part of it, at least, Father, I've sinned against you. And you never have the direct absolution. So the father never says, well, son, you know, I forgive you. It's all action. So he, you know, gives him all the things. Here's the robe and the ring and the party and everything. And it seems to be more of that concept of sharing in the joy of the father's grace. If the whole point were just simply to convey the forgiveness to the son, and certainly he has that, you would have probably the direct absolution. But instead, it, it launches into this joyous celebration. And I, so I think I do like that, that concept of the adding that, that element of grace too, rejoicing in God's grace for us, but then also uh, being a part of rejoicing in that grace for others and conveying that grace for others. Yeah, one of the, I think one of the beautiful things about the parable is that it, it doesn't tell you what grace is. It doesn't define it. It doesn't analyze it. It doesn't dissect it. It just shows you what grace, what grace looks like. And the way that it pictures so well, um, you know, the consequences of, of grace that is abused is, is the son wallowing with the pigs. The consequences of grace despised is the son's, the older son's anger and frustration. I mean, you just, you hear that description and you, you hear the words that come out of his mouth and you can just, you can just taste almost like uh dried up French, dried up burnt toast, I think. Um, just, just how bitter he is. Uh, you can, you can, you can just taste it in your mouth. And, and I think people can relate to that. And I think as preachers, one of the, the goals of this sermon has to be, um, do that, try and do that in a, in a similar way and achieve a similar effect. And rather than, um, sort of uh, almost by habit or reflex falling into a, a dogmatic dissection of grace, show grace the way that Jesus did. So if, yeah, if, if anger and bitterness are a result of a, a denial or despising of grace, then the joy that comes with um, embracing God's grace, not only for ourselves, but, but then for others too. I'm, this is a little squishy. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I try to put this into a sermon, but as I hear you talk, John, it makes me wonder if there isn't a para message 
in Jesus' parable that says, Pharisees, you see you're breaking your father's heart by despising grace, his grace. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would very much agree with that. And I, I think the interesting companion thought to that um, is that by addressing them the way that he does, Jesus is essentially doing for them what the father does for the older brother at the end of the parable. Um, he could have just blasted them. He could have he could have publicly shamed them, you know, as he's hanging out with all these these tax collectors and sinners, and they're off, you know, on the side sneering and muttering. He could have really uh, called attention to them, and yet he does it in this very gentle and indirect way. Um, and in in the process, he's doing exactly what the father does for the older brother at the end of the parable. He's he's going out to them, he's putting his arm around them, he's beseeching them. You know, you mentioned the imperfect tense. Well, we've got three consecutive parables here, so he's doing it over and over and over again, and he's trying to show them uh, there's there's joy inside the party that you guys are really missing out on. Um, and I think it's interesting in some ways too that whether whether you attribute this to to Luke or Jesus, there's almost a third layer to it in that we don't hear about the Pharisees' reaction. So now as the reader, you kind of have the same effect. You've got this parable that is presented to you by Jesus and, and by Luke on the pages of Scripture, and you're just left to sit there and stare at it and ponder it for a while without being, without having the finger pointed directly at you um, and saying, now, you know, what do, what do you think about this? Or, or here's how you should respond to this. Um, it's just, it's, it's set alongside uh, this self-righteous heart that we have, and, and it gives us a chance to wrestle with it in a very similar way to what Jesus did. What adds a little bit to that is how close Jesus is to being uh, handed over to Pilate by these same religious leaders, these same corrupt, hard-hearted religious leaders. Jesus is so close to that, and he's still reaching out uh, with everything he has to try to rescue them. Other thoughts? Joel? Maybe building on uh, just a few things we've already discussed a little bit. Um, I know Professor had mentioned the the whole pig slop kind of idea um, that I, I don't know if we should make a lot of it, but I think twice in the Greek it talks, it, I think the participle is used um, getting up, I think in verse 18 and verse 19. So you almost picture him in the slop itself, <laughs> you know, not just standing in it, but kind of wallowing in it. And and then I, that added it just in my own mind, kind of another visual element or at least sensory element that when he comes home, I mean, he's shoeless and he smells like, well, I, I used to have a job cleaning horse stalls. So you smell like manure. And my mom would make me strip down in the garage because she's like, you're not coming in with that. And the father, you know, hangs on his neck with with all of that and, and you know, gives him a new robe. Just, I mean, there's a lot of just visual, um, I think John Bauer had said it earlier, just grace is described. And I think we, we would do well as preachers to describe grace rather than try to define it here. Um, so that's a neat one. I, I jotted down a potential theme as we were talking, and maybe it's uh, Jesus loves burnt toast. Is, <laughs> is that what I was 
Pulling it's from a us. very cross-cultural theme, okay. Joel. Okay. He does like cross. He also likes French toast. He also likes cream toast. I mean, you just take that thing for a walk, Joel. You could. You really could. <laughs> John. Joe made me think of, of something uh, just that we've has been on my mind recently. So we're, we're doing this uh, home remodeling project right now, and it includes uh, moving our washer and dryer from the upstairs where our bedrooms are to the main level, which will be a whole lot more functional. And uh, so we, we were doing the electrical work and the plumbing work, and I got a guy from church that uh, is doing the electrical, and he's got a buddy who's doing the, the plumbing and they were over last weekend and they both told me the exact same thing that the key to a successful and happy marriage is two sets of washers and dryers. And this is coming from two guys who, who work in the trades and come home, uh, you know, a little bit sw- sweaty and a little bit smelly. Now that's an electrician and a plumber. Take that to, uh, you know, a huge degree higher with wallowing around in the pigs and the, the stench that goes along with that. So maybe there's a way to kind of build up to that for people that, you know, we kind of get repulsed by this smell. If your husband does this, or if you've got a 14 year old who plays tackle football, you know what a smelly voice, you know, is like, imagine your son uh, working with pigs and you see him out at the end of the road and you run and, and you give him a big hug and you don't make him, throw his clothes in the washing machine before you do it. Having, having worked in the industry, so to speak, um, there are different stenches to manure and pigs are by far one of the worst too. So I'll leave it at that. Don't carry a metaphor too far, but for what it's worth. <laughs> you know, you were talking about themes, Joel. Um, recognizing that the main character in the parable is the father and not either one of the sons, the theme would probably pick up on that, like the father is waiting for all of his children to come home or the father delights in the return of every child, something something like that. I I like that. And I I like, uh, I mean, you could even build on that a little bit. there's, there's waiting, and then there's also the, the, you know, he's not content until all of his children are in the house. And not only is he willing to wait for them, he's, he's willing to go out for both. You know, he doesn't wait for them to come all the way back home. He goes out and, and, and finds each one. And there's a, you know, there's obviously a thread there with a connection with the, the previous two, where the owners of these lost objects actively go out and search, and now you've got the father doing the same thing. Through us. Just uh, yeah, just it strikes me like when you when when you connect the various um, depictions of God's love throughout a couple of these Luke accounts in Lent, it's like like almost reckless. I mean, this is this is a father taking back a son, just asking to have this kid burn him again. Um, it's just it's like reckless the way he's loving. And then you get you know some what is it is it next week pair pair or. Uh, coming up with Luke 20, um, they're reading the parable of the tenants. You know, maybe that maybe he'll listen. They'll listen to my son. It's just reckless the way God shows love to us, um, which is one way of picturing grace without dogmatically articulating it. I, I often think too that there is the third son of the story, and that's the one who tells the story, and he's the proof of the father's reckless love that he would 
you know, the father sends his son and here he is telling us the story, calling us all to, to come home. I like that, Joel. I'm going to use that. I, I'm, I'm preaching this text this coming Sunday, and I just adjusted the last paragraph of my sermon. Thank you for that. Well, I got to thank you for the toast one, too. So it's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> iron has clearly sharpened iron. <laughs> other, th- other thoughts? I... Professor Sorum talked about it a little bit before. Um, I, I think this is one of those texts. You know, there's so much, of course, and and you only get to preach for so long. But um, at least one thing to consider is the opportunity to draw attention to uh, just how how visibly, how publicly, and in how many different ways the father wanted to communicate to his son that he was he was now a son. And of course, we don't want to to allegorize anything and you know say, well, the ring is like this and the robe is like this and the fattened calf is like this. But I think there is natural opportunity for highlighting the way that God deals with us through the various means of grace. Um, that not only are there multiple aspects, multiple facets to it, um, but there are also there's the visible element there's the public element. And I think especially that public element is one that we don't always highlight as much. Um, you know, we, as, as Americans, I think we, we just so easily default to our relationship with God being this private and very personal thing. But I think one blessing of the sacraments is their public nature. God isn't just telling me that I'm his child. He's also telling the people sitting next to me that I'm his child. And if I'm hearing God telling them that, it just adds to the assurance that I have in my own heart. Um, he's willing to tell the whole wide world that I'm his child because he He demonstrates it in these different ways. It's not just, you know, me and in, in the uh, privacy of my own house with my Bible open reading um, about God's love. It's something that he's willing to do very, very publicly. I want to thank you for that, John. I, I, uh, this Sunday, I'll preach on Luke 15, but then I'll do a Bible study at, between services on John 15. And what I'm doing with the Bible study, did I say John 15? I meant Luke 15. What I'm doing with the Bible study is that Jesus teaches us as a congregation how to receive sinners. And I'm going to tell a story about how in my neighborhood back in the day when I lived in Milwaukee, one of my neighbors was a Harley rider. And, uh, you know, he didn't know I was a pastor, but we were we were friends. And, you know, we, let's just say we were friends. And one day he called me up and he said, hey, Al, how come your life is always good and mine always is bad? He, he said it a little differently than that. But for this context, it's all mm-hmm. in that way. And uh, so he went through instruction and he, he, he married his girl. And, I, and I, I told the members, I warned the members, now you're going to meet a guy. He's coming to church this Sunday and he's got the, he's got the purple skull tats and he's got the, the clothes and the hair. I, I say, you receive him and you love him up and don't be intimidated. He's a sweetheart and his name is Scott. We got to teach well, in many situations we, we need to teach our people how to receive guests, how to be relational. 
And uh, I'm thinking of something you said recently, John, that in view of COVID, in view of the environment we live in in these United States now, you, we can forget about soccer outreach programs in our, in our congregational outreach planets. Our individual members need to reach out into their relationships and share their faith through the private personal relationships. And having done that, we gotta, we got to feel confident in our members to receive the people we bring to church with, with joy and happiness and, and, and hospitality in their hearts. John, just to just to piggyback on that, I know one thing that um, you know occasionally causes me to break out into a cold sweat uh, at times is not having the the luxury of the situation that you described, where where you know a guy's coming to church for the first time, and you know that does happen, where you can you can occasionally give people a little bit of a heads up, and so you you know you you think okay what happens when that's not the case? You know, what happens when it's just completely out of the blue, almost as much as I'm sure it, it, even though he was waiting, it was a surprise to the father to see the son at the end of the road. And I think what this parable maybe offers to that is in addition to opportunities to teach. And, you know, when we preach on this parable, we're doing that very thing um, to again, show um, and that people would see in us, and, and that we can highlight people that have this spiritual gift, too, to say, here's a picture of what that gracious welcoming looks like. So that even if you're not harping on it every week, even if you don't have the chance to, to give them a heads up ahead of time, they've seen it in action. Um, and hopefully that prepares them for, for when the time comes. Joel, oh, you had a thought. It, it just adds to, to what they've already said a little bit is I think of a few families in our church here who are, are the waiting parent right now because they see their wayward child strain and they're wondering, what do I do? And this, like you said, we, to, to show how do you continue to love? How do you continue to show compassion and care from afar? I think people do need help with that. And just what you were talking about, Alan, about teaching our, you know, teaching our people to welcome. And there's only, there's only so much time you can spend on a, on this text, obviously from the pulpit, but it's such an important point. Um, just the, the fact that the that the son. I mean, that we we've been talking about his his stink, but that seems to be a metaphorical connection to the way he lived his life. He squandered his wealth in wild living. You know, however you want to translate that. That there's a there's a moral decadence, a, de- a depravity that makes him stinky in the eyes of not even like religious people, but just the average person. You know what? You know how how do we make our church bodies not 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 certainly not tolerant of the sin, but safe a safe landing place for sinners who are in, engaged in a lifestyle that is like wildly decadent um, to the average member. That's a that's a big challenge. Big challenge, but it's doable. And you know, I I think so often people just need it to have it pointed out that it's okay to talk with your friends, but don't close your circle, open the circle and bring new people into it. Uh, just a quick story, a uh, uh, friend, I was talking to a friend who's uh, alcoholic and, and he, I was teasing him because he comes into church, goes, gets his Jesus and bails. But I said, how do, you, how do you act when a newcomer comes to your AA meeting? And he says, oh, well, you greet him and you welcome and you give him your phone number and you say, uh, 
how can I help you if you need anything? I said, I said, dude, you, you can do that at your AA meeting, but you can't do that at your Christian congregation. Come on. So he got the point. Yeah. He got the point. He, he was, he was trainable in that respect. I, that, what John said before made me think of something too, how this, this parable can, can help, um, you know, when we, we know those people, whether it's, you know, and Joel brings up a great point for a lot of people, it might be their, their actual children. Um, but maybe it's someone we know, whatever the case might be, the tendency, I think, is so often to, to overreach, to, over, to overreact, um, to think, I've got to blast this person with a fire hose until they see the light. Um, especially if we think in our own minds, you know, they, they should know better. They, they grew up in the house. They grew up in the family. Um, I think a comforting thought from this parable is connected to what Professor Sorm said uh, way earlier about the, this idea of coming to himself. Um, the path that those, those lost children are on is most assuredly a dead end. And there's comfort that we can take in that, that that we don't need to be there putting up the roadblock and and almost forcing forcibly preventing them from taking one step further away. Um, they are they're inevitably going to reach a dead end or they're going to hit rock bottom, however you want to describe it. Um, and and maybe to view our task as making sure in the meantime that they know that when that that thing happens, we're waiting. We're waiting and we're ready to embrace um, instead of thinking, how do I stop them from going further, which which can sometimes be a, a self-defeating proposition, I think. you got to say that from the pulpit. You know, the folks got to hear that. The parents need to know that that's how their wayward kids will be received. But the but the yeah. Amen. Amen. Beautiful thought. Any final thoughts? No, no, I mean, there's so much in the parable, but you do have, I mean, we talked about this with the previous parable, the, the end stress, and you kind of have the end stress given twice, I guess, with the, my son was dead, now he's alive, he's lost, but now found. You have that repeating thought, and there's something you can make out of that if you want to go that route too. I mean, you're, you're working all those thoughts in, but you definitely have that repetition there too. Oops, Joel, you, you made me think of another Greek thought. The, did you catch the construction for lost? It, it's an imperfect paraphrastic. So he was in the condition of being lost. He was stuck. He, he, that what an interesting phraseology for depicting lostness. It's an ongoing condition that you cannot rescue yourself from. Sorry, John, I got a little uh, systematic on you there. You're good. But, and and that, no, that's a good thought. In the in the last uh, verse, there's also another die. So we had talked about that previously. That we had to celebrate. It was necessary to celebrate. Um, I see you, you probably make a Bible study or sermon series just on the word die and, and its usage in the book of Luke. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? If not, once again, brothers, uh, thanks. Blessings to all of you as you begin writing. Bye-bye.